This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem and the fascinating people that make it tick. This week, your host, Michael Green, speaks with the Honourable Jennifer Cote Ao, who throughout her life in the law has been a partner in an all-female practice, a magistrate, head of the Children's Court, a county court judge, Victorian State Coroner, one of the commissioners in the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, and most recently, chair of the COVID-19 Hotel Quarantine Inquiry. Quite an extraordinary career. Growing up in social housing in outer Melbourne, Jennifer always knew she wanted to be a lawyer, but largely kept this desire a secret because A, she had no idea how to become a lawyer, and B, despite her obvious intelligence and aptitude, it was made clear to her that nursing or teaching were the available options for a young woman with no connections in the law. I had no connections to anyone in the law. I'd never I'd never met a lawyer. I was lucky enough, however, to have a teacher with whom I confided in about my wish to become a lawyer. And I'd, I didn't talk with other students about it because I was a little bit embarrassed about it. That teacher arranged for me to meet with a lawyer in Dandenong, the area that I, I lived in, and I went to that meeting with him. I was very excited about having had that opportunity. Unfortunately, I came away from that meeting feeling quite deflated because during uh, the engagement with him, he asked me questions about who I knew in the law, what my parents did, did they have any money, all of which, of course, I had to answer in the negative. He explained to me that it would be virtually an impossible path for me without money behind me, without contacts in the law. And he also threw in the fact that I was a woman, that it would be almost impossible for me to make my way in the law. Good morning to Lives in the Law and good morning to our guest this morning, the Honourable Jennifer Cote, formerly of the Family Court of Australia and the County Court of Victoria. Good morning, Jennifer. Yes, good morning, Michael. Jennifer, you had a remarkable mother, it seems to me, a lady named Maisie Cote. Yes. Who had a big influence on you and the person you are today. Can you tell us about her, what she did and how she influenced you? Yes, so my mother was, I would describe as one of the bravest people that I've ever met. Brave, loyal, determined, um, strong, optimistic. She was a a person who, in my memory of her throughout her whole life, dedicated to addressing disadvantage. And it was only really many years later, I was in my 40s, when my mother revealed to me at least one of the drivers that Uh, focused her on addressing disadvantage, which was in fact her own childhood. She was what was referred to in hideous previous regimes, an illegitimate child, which meant that uh, she was not part of her original birth family. Uh, She was placed in an orphanage and grew up in foster care. And by the time she was 14, she was effectively on the street and supporting herself and uh, 
had to leave school, much to her sadness. So that was another driver for her, her unshakable dedication to education, which is something that she instilled in me from the time I could first remember. What did your mum do? Was she a stay-at-home mum or did she have another role she had to play to support the family? So from the time that I started school, my mother was at work and the job that she got was as a welfare officer for what was then called the Housing Commission, now the Ministry of Housing. So in fact, we lived on a Housing Commission estate. So we were residents in the, in the Housing Commission estate and she became a welfare officer. So her job was actually working with people who were hoping to be housed in Housing Commission homes, either in the area that I grew up in called Lindale or uh, the other large Housing Commission estate near us in the 50s, which was Doveton. Uh-huh. So she worked across both of those estates. And Housing Commission today would be called public housing. Public housing or social housing. Social housing. And it was um, a big source of housing for less well-off families post-war, post the Second World War. Yes, Michael, that's right. In fact, in the, uh, I think we went out to Dandenong in 1956. So by that time, there was a considerable amount of industrial development out in that area. So Heinz, GMH, International Harvester, those big factories Mm. were all being built out in that area. So the social housing was being built to provide workers into those factories. And so where did you go to school, Jennifer? So I went to school at Lindale Primary School, which was a school built on the on the edge of that housing commission estate. So there were housing commission or social housing and private housing that were feeding into the school. And my high school was um, Lindale High School. So by the time I got there, the school was about 10 years old. Uh, and at that stage, the student cohort only went to old form five now, year year 11. So there hadn't been enough students in those first 10 years to get through to finishing school. So by the time I got to then matriculation, year 12, uh, we were the first group to form enough students to complete that final year of school. Mm. But you didn't go from year 12 to law school No, I didn't. You took another path. I did take another path. Tell us about that path. So I had already by that time, deep in my heart, um, formed a view that I wanted to become a lawyer. However, there was at that time still fees to pay at universities and my family had no prospect of being able to assist me to do that. Also, I had no way of supporting myself at that time, sufficient to enable me to attend university. Uh, I had obtained a teaching studentship. You you might remember from back in those days, um, ironically, there was, I say ironically because here we are again, there was a large teacher shortage uh, in Victoria. And so high school students were being approached and the prospect of being able to receive a studentship while studying to be a teacher was available. 
And I took that opportunity, so I agreed to sign up for a teaching studentship, which I had for my last two years of school. So that paid for my books and my uniform and got me a pathway into a tertiary education at Frankston Teachers College. And with those studentships, if my memory's right, you entered into a contract, I guess, to remain in the education department for a certain number of years after you graduated from Teachers College. That's correct, Michael, a bond. Yeah, bond. It was called. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're not getting anywhere near the law at the moment, Jennifer. You're a teacher <laughs> teaching in a primary school or a secondary school? Uh, primary. I was training for a primary school teaching. So you're yeah. primary school teaching. You go out and teach for several years? I did. I did. Well, I, I was committed to teaching out my bond and that was for three years. We had to teach um, to repay the support that we'd received from the government. So we we didn't have to pay any fees and we, in fact, received a fortnightly allowance. Uh, I thought that it was only fair that I finished my contract or bond with the education department, so I did do that. Did you enjoy teaching? I found teaching really an extraordinarily valuable experience in the, the teacher training was a was a great enhancement to my general knowledge the camaraderie at the college was fantastic but I, I knew it wasn't for me it was not my long-term my long-term goal my long-term goal remained that I wanted to get into law so how did you get into law so Partway through my college training, it became apparent, or I became aware, I should say, that there was the possibility of getting what was called an extended studentship to go on to university. So I applied for one of those and fortunately for me was awarded an extended studentship. So finally I was on the path to where I wanted to go. So I, after I finished teaching, uh, sorry, finished my training at the college, I went straight on to Monash. And uh, as long as I had majors in the two teaching subjects, I was able to basically pick and choose. So I went and enrolled in a first-year law subject. And now we're getting closer <laughs> yeah. to law. After all yep. this time, yep. we're starting to... Still- Still there, still holding on to the, and, still uh, holding on to the vision. The gate's been opened because you're doing a first-year law subject. Yes. Ultimately, you get across into the law faculty, but were you teaching at the same time as doing your law degree? Yes, I was. I went off travelling for a year after I finished my three-year bond, then came back and taught for one more year so I could save up some more money to then put myself full-time And, and this has got law. you to, say, middle to late 20s, I'm guessing? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. It interests me there, you've had no exposure to the law as a child, your family have got no connections into the law. No. But you were still absolutely determined to do law. Why law? Why did it have such a hold on you? Uh, It's a good question, Michael, and it's one that I've reflected on a number of times. And I, I think it comes down to three drivers. First and foremost, my mother and my mother's influence really on and her role modelling to me. So I've spoken already about her dedication to education and her her own struggles and triumphs in in her life. But uh, what I haven't spoken about is her political activism. 
And so I grew up in a very, in an environment that was full of discussions about politics and and governments and forms of governments and political systems. And it was that, I think, that was one of the drivers that I, I saw disadvantage, inequality and injustice all around me where I was growing up and came to understand through being a, a young person, a child really, listening to those discussions, that the way to make change was inside the big machinery and the big machinery clearly was things like our, our legal system. So that was an important driver, the need really to be inside the tent. My mother also instilled in me the importance of being a participant in the world you want to live in. So that was another driver for me. And then I think it's really important to put a cultural context on when I was growing up. So, so this is the 60s and, and the early 70s. So there were huge political movements that were very active um, there was, you know, the really the strong beginnings of the land rights movement. I think the Wave Hill walk-off was mid-60s, about 1966. I was aware of that. Feminism started at the same time. Feminism started at the same time. Bob Dylan was singing um, all of his protest songs okay. and all of those things were coming together to, to drive me inside the tent. And inside the tent for me was understanding the legal system because it seemed to me that was what was a really important driver for everything that was happening in our community. So, Jennifer, you get through law school and get through, obviously, with flying colours. How did you get a job? Where did you get a job? What sort of legal work did you do to start off as, as a, one of the older graduates, I guess? So... Uh, Michael, I, obviously I was still in the same position in a way as, as I was when I went into the law school that I, I didn't have any contacts, I didn't have anyone that I could call upon to give me assistance or help me find my way into a job. But I got some great advice from a fellow student when we were in that final year all having discussions about where we were going and what we were going to do. And at that time, the the main path was via articles of clerkship. And the advice that I got was, think about what marks you apart from the crowd. What's different about you that's going to attract a prospective employer and give you articles? And so I thought about what I'd been doing. And the last few years, of course, I'd been teaching in at Collingwood. And, and I thought, okay, that's the different thing about me. So I'm going to open up the yellow pages and I'm going to look for uh, firms in that area and apply there with my background of work in that area. So I knew the area pretty well. And knowing the local community. And I knew the local community well. I'd, in total, I'd been teaching there for about seven years and um, that worked. I got an interview with Peter McMullen, who was running a firm in Collingwood, and we were, I think, a very good fit for each other. He was, a lot of the work that he was doing was in the areas of social justice, so children's court and criminal law, family law, inner urban poverty law practice, really. And, and I'm interested in the poverty law because I would have thought, having worked in a small practice myself for a long time, a lot of the work was conveyancing, but in that demographic there wouldn't have been people buying their own home. No, uh, it, that's that's absolutely right. 
So the mainstay of the work, as I said, was child protection, children's court, criminal law and uh, family law. Did any particular area of the law appeal to you in doing that mix of law? Was there one particular thing you really enjoyed more than anything else? Look, I enjoyed I enjoyed working in that area. I felt very comfortable in that area. So rather than thinking about any particular type of law, I think it's not an exaggeration to say I was just um, thrilled, really, to get my first job and to um, and to finally have uh, arrived. It was one of the um, uh, most memorable days, really, of my life to, to to be present at my own admission into yes, the law. That was yes. a, that was a huge day for me. So it's a terrific story that you tell that you don't need to go to an expensive private school, get get into law school and in with a large firm. There are different ways and other ways to achieve your goals if you're determined enough. Yes. Well, I I think that's that's absolutely right. And I, I hope that our law schools and our profession is starting to reflect that uh, better than we did during the period that I came through in. And after articles, you stayed with Peter McMullen? Yes. And worked I, your way up through the firm? Yes, yes. And so you became Peter's partner, though you were uh, formed a partnership, a legal partnership. Yeah, so I, I think it was uh, after about four years of working in the firm, uh, we entered into a partnership together. Did the firm need to expand for, for to have two partners and, and to provide a living for two partners? Well, we, we did expand. We expanded mainly as a result of an opportunity that came up. You might be familiar with Kate Orty and Yelena Popovic, who had a an all-female practice that they were running in East Melbourne. So we were, by this time we were in Fitzroy, we'd crossed the road and uh, those two had decided that they were going to move on from their practice. And so we were one of the firms that they approached. Peter and I decided to uh, purchase that practice and run it as an all-female practice, which had been a long-held dream of mine. So I moved to the offices in East Melbourne and we engaged a group of women to come and work in that practice and it, um, it took off. Are we talking maybe mid-80s or something like that? That would be right. And so mid things were 80s. changing in terms of um, women in the, in the profession, women running their own practices, obviously. It was viable to do it. It was commercially viable as well as being socially worthwhile, but it was also commercially viable for you and Peter. Uh, it was a hugely busy practice. It hadn't been, the commercial drivers hadn't been the driver for me, but of course, one needs to turn over enough to pay salaries and pay the rent and pay all the insurances and the huge overheads that I think everyone understands. But it clearly addressed a need at that time. So the practice became extremely busy. Extremely busy uh, means to me that the principle of the practice would be working long hours. In that sort of practice, not a lot of support, I'm suspecting. How did it impact upon you, that extreme busyness? and the demand for your time, how did you cope with it? Well, let, let me start by saying I, I loved the work. I really I got great rewards and satisfaction from the work that we were doing, but it was extremely demanding. And uh, I, I have to say I was working very long hours and... Um, seven days a week, I'll bet. And seven days a week, yeah. yeah there was no let-up from... 
the demands and I was driven to try and meet every every demand upon us. And Peter, uh, Peter had stayed in the Fitzroy practice and I was running the East Melbourne practice. I think we gradually came to the realisation that the lifestyle that we were leading in the practices was ultimately not sustainable for either of us and it was time to move on and for me take those skills and experience that I had developed somewhere else. And what did you do after selling the practices? So the fir- that for the first year after we sold the practices, I worked for Victoria Legal Aid for a year. And again, that was a, a fantastic year, another great learning year. Uh, but at the end of that year, I, I realised it was um, time to try and consolidate all of the things that I had learnt and also to w- take on work in an area where I had lots of ideas about what needed improvement. And at roughly the same time I came to that view, I opened what was then the classified pages of the age and I found a job uh, that was inside the Attorney General's Department, the policy and research area. And it was working on the new crimes family violence legislation. And it was about to go into its first review and so it was the, this was what the job was all about. And I thought that's exactly the job that I, I want. This was to take you inside the tent where you could have an influence upon policy in areas you thought there needed to be change. Exactly. And to, and to take everything that I had um, learnt from the years that I'd been working with, in particular women and children, so directly affected by the impact of family violence. So I applied for and was lucky enough to be successful to obtain that job. So in I went. Jim Kennan was the then Attorney General and so it was in a a small but extremely capable and impressive team of lawyers that I went in with that that focus. You had a long career as a policy advisor to a minister? I can't say, unfortunately, because, of course, I had this wonderful opportunity given to me to come into the magistrate's court from there, but uh, I really only lasted a couple of months. Ironically, I was quite reluctant to do it. But the reason why I was reluctant is because I was so excited about the prospect of working in the policy area and, again, learning skills about how policy can be turned into legal change. So that was one of the one of the reasons um, for my reluctance, and I was somewhat apprehensive about whether or not the work in the magistrates' court would would be I would be a good fit for the work. I should say. So you accepted the offer to become a magistrate. Did you enjoy your work as a magistrate? I mean, what was it like to, with your background, to walk into a court, to be the presiding officer in a court, to be listening to arguments, making decisions? Did you enjoy it, and and how did you adapt to it? So. Uh, the short answer is I, I absolutely loved the work, uh, but there were a couple of hard years at the beginning. It was a very steep learning curve to to go into the court. It was quite daunting. I had wonderful encouragement and support from the then chief magistrate, was Sally Brown, and um, Sally had already been a role model 
to me and indeed remains so. Also, just to make clear, at that time, I think I was part of a group of about something like 10, 13% of the court at that stage were, were women. So it was mostly a male environment inside the court. Having said that, it was a very supportive environment, but it was quite a transition. It's quite a transition to go from being part of the legal profession one day to taking that oath and taking up your position inside the court where, in many ways, your relationship with the legal profession changes. And I think I only came to realise that gradually as the years unfolded that you really need to readjust. One of the one of the other aspects of that transition is you tend to be a little bit more closed with the public about the work that you do and even about the fact that you are a magistrate for a whole range of reasons, including that people want to feel the need to give you advice about how to do your job. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. After maybe three years as a magistrate, so you've, you've got your training wheels off, you're going well in the magistrate's court, you become head of the children's court. Yes. We've never discussed the children's court in our um, many conversations with lawyers in this series. So can you tell us where the children's court fits into the justice system? I mean, it's got what, two arms or yes. two sections? Two, two divisions. Two divisions, So, right, yeah. yeah, the Children's Court operates in two divisions. So one division is unfortunately confusingly called the family division, so often confused with the family court. A better description of it is the child protection division of the court and the other side of the court is the criminal division. So the child protection side of the court is the part of the court that deals with matters that are brought in by the child protection service in circumstances where there are allegations that a child is at need of being protected from harm inside his or her family. The other side of the court is dealing with children and young people who have come into contact with our criminal justice system as a result of coming to the attention of the police charged with crimes. When I first started at the court, the definition of a child who could be subjected to the criminal law was a child between the ages of 10 and their 17th birthday. Right at the end of my time at the Children's Court, that age was increased to 18th birthday. Sadly, the minimum age of criminal responsibility still remains behind large parts of the rest of the world, the rest of the Western world, and remains still at um, 10. I find that amazing and uh, unjustifiable that we would hold children of 10 criminally responsible. It doesn't seem to be equate with a um, civilised society. Yeah, so we, we have what's called a common law presumption that operates certainly in Victoria that a child between the ages of um, 10 and 14 carries a presumption that they're not capable of committing a crime. So it's um, a presumption known to lawyers who work in the area as Dolly Incapax. And that will 
filter out a number of young people who come to the attention of the police under the age of 14, but the law still remains in place that a, a child of those ages can be charged. I mean, it's a shame, and I, I, I mean that sincerely. It is, I think, a shame on our nation that we have nations like Cambodia, for example, that have a minimum age of criminal responsibility as of 14 and uh, we haven't found the political will in this country to lift that age. And there are many, many good reasons and one can listen to the experts talking about the dangers and damage to children and young people who receive that criminal label at such a young age. Michael and you, I'm sure, would be familiar with the trajectory of young people who come to the attention of the criminal justice system at such a young age, we do a great deal of damage to them. I agree entirely. I mean, whether it's through this show or through um, my own experience within the law, um, that trajectory is... Uh, it's grim. Absolutely grim and rarely uh, does it deviate. At the time you went to the court, I think there'd recently been a review of the court? Yes, the the Fogarty review. Yes. Yeah. One of the changes was written reasons, written reasons to be provided to the parties. Yeah. Do you think that was an important change, a necessary change to make? I, I thought that was a hugely important change to make and one of my reasons for wanting reasons to be written was to enable children and young people later in life to come to understand how and why decisions had been, life-altering decisions had been made about them. It was, to me, a deeply important to make sure that those children and young people who had had decisions made about their lives um, by us working in the court, that they could come to understand how and why things had happened. And up until that point, we really only effectively made a, a, just a couple of sentences on a pro forma about the reasons behind the orders that were made and those sentences were this child is in need of care and protection mm. and then the orders that were yeah. that were made. Um, ironically, some years later, when I was appointed onto the Royal Commission, I'm sure we'll get to that, I spoke to lots and lots of people who were very focused on obtaining their files from across the nation, the various child protection agencies, for that very reason, to understand what had happened to them. And I heard their frustrations when A, they weren't able to find their files, or B, they couldn't find the reasons why decisions They just found had two pro forma sentences. Yeah. Jennifer, you had 11 years at the Children's Court and then you become state coroner. How soon after you took on the role was the Black Saturday bushfire tragedy, which was a, then a major event in your time as coroner? Uh, it was about it was about twelve months later. I think it it was the end of the end of two thousand and seven that I went to uh, went into the role as state coroner, and the Black Saturday catastrophe happened in February of two thousand and nine. So in that, and catastrophe is the word for it, of course, 173 people died. It was the greatest loss of life from a natural disaster in Australian history, and I assume still is. As the state coroner, you were immediately involved 
in in the tragedy, the catastrophe. That surprised me a bit. I can understand the coroner gets involved after the event to look at situations and learn the lessons that need to be learnt for the sake of the community. But in this case, you were immediately involved in this catastrophe. How did that come about? What role did the state coroner play in the midst of when the tragedy is actually going on? So one of the responsibilities of the coroner in a reportable death and these tragic losses of life all formed the definition of reportable death to the coroner. One of the roles is to identify the person whose life has been lost in reportable circumstances and to also obtain the cause of death. But in a multi-fatality scene such as the uh, Black Saturday fires were, there are international standards that are set for how the coroner's work is to be done and it's in collaboration with the police. There are a whole number of factors that have to be taken into account. Those international standards of what are called disaster victim identification are police standards. And of course, our coronial system is quite a unique system in the world. So whilst police standards are fairly consistent across the world, coronial systems aren't. So we were working with police standards in the disaster victim identification area, but having to adapt them to what coroners are required to do. In this circumstance, that situation meant that those scenes where people had died and the fires had gone through became what are called coroner's scenes. In other words, the coroner, together with the police, have responsibility for the scenes. And so we had a manual which said in the event of a multi-fatality multi scene, the coroner is to attend the scene, make an assessment as to how the retrieval of the lives lost the human remains at the scenes will be located and then identified, how the scene will be secured and a range of other things. So that required me to visit the scene. Of course, there was not one scene, as many people would remember. There were, I think, about 300 fires separately across the state, many of them still burning on the, on the 9th of February. And so with your responsibilities, were you contacted immediately, when there are, are multiple fatalities in a reportable situation, you're immediately contacted and your role starts straight away and you've, sort of, you've then got to go to that manual, check what your responsibilities are and then put together a plan to carry out those responsibilities. That's absolutely right, Michael. And indeed, by the early evening of the 7th of February, the Saturday. Yeah, the Saturday, the yeah. 7th of February, sorry. Yeah. I was receiving calls from our 24-hour office and at that stage, because the numbers were changing all the time, our 24-hour staff had indicated to me that up to 25 people had died. When I got that call, I just got changed and said, I'm coming into the office. By the time I got in there, I had already received um, another call from the police saying, look, we actually think the numbers might be as high as 40. 
that that was how the numbers kept on changing in those next um, 24 hours because, of course, there were many areas that uh, it was impossible to actually get into because fires were still burning. So we made, uh, I, I, I was there till quite late that evening um, in the office and we were making plans uh, as to how the next morning would unfold. So we were there very, very early the next morning, called in everybody, police, our own staff at the court, as well as the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine scientists. So we all met very early on that morning to make a range of decisions about the strategies and the processes that we needed to engage in to perform our our roles. Did you have the human resources to carry out all of your responsibilities, to perform your roles? Uh, That was absolutely part of what we discussed, the sorts of resources that we would need. And so, for example, the police immediately started work on gathering together a range of teams that we would need to go and uh, speak with families for the purposes of identification and collect DNA samples for the purpose of identification. We started work on how many forensic pathologists that would be needed and where we might get more resources from in terms of uh, court staff and and a range of other areas as well as staff inside the Institute of Forensic Medicine. This is February 2009. How long did it last for, your role I mean, I appreciate that I may have been on for years in terms of hearings, et cetera, but this substantial involvement, early days, did it last for months or weeks? It did last for um, for a number of weeks. I think it took us 12 weeks, uh, about 12 weeks, to complete all of the identifications and the releases back to the family of, of their loved ones. That was grim and challenging work with a, a great sense, first and foremost, of the need to work with the grief of the families of families and communities, those affected by the loss of life in the fires and the trauma felt by families. It was a, a grim, difficult and challenging task. That- Raises with with me, Jennifer, the question of what's now called vicarious trauma. You say it's such a grim task. You work in the children's court with grim situations. How do you personally deal with the potential trauma that these situations can have upon you? And what do you do for your staff? Because they're all exposed to these situations which can have lifetime traumatic effects. You're absolutely right. Michael, and I think that my experience at the Children's Court and the discussions that we had as a group working inside the Children's Court certainly enlivened my acknowledgement and understanding of the potential for vicarious trauma to have a fairly deep impact on the staff working there as well as um, as well as the coroner. So we acknowledged that very much up front when we when we started the work. So one of the things that we did was we uh, we in those early weeks we held daily briefings across the entire Victorial Victorian Coronial Services Centre, which included the police, the scientific staff inside the institute and all of our court staff. So those daily briefings were open to everybody. It was an effort 
to let everyone know what was going on, to answer questions, to identify problems, including encouraging people to talk about the actual emotional impact upon themselves, to acknowledge that and to validate that and to bring together this sense of unity of purpose we inside the court, we actually hired a, f- a flat, an apartment across the road and encouraged our staff to go over there and take a bit of a break from the phones ringing and people rushing around and and being surrounded by that um, sense of urgency and grief and trauma that was so visceral inside the centre at the time. Uh, we brought in debriefers and we used that apartment across the road to in really encourage our staff to have debriefing sessions but to leave the workplace and go across the road where there was a, a, a much quieter environment to be in. I encouraged people, everyone, when you, when you went home, stop looking at the newspapers, turn off the TV because, as you might recall, it was, for obvious reasons, very much in the front of everyone's mind every day. It was hard to escape it, but uh, I was really encouraging the staff to try and switch off at the end of the day. Were you able to switch off? I wasn't able to switch off during that period. I just, I really just didn't want to. I was so determined to work as hard and as fast as we could to do what we needed to do for those families devastated by what had happened. And I think the wider community really needed that resolution of that first stage of the work that that we were required to do. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers' lists in Australia. Greens List believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. Jennifer, I'm cherry-picking my way through a remarkable career that you have had, and have now, it's not finished. The next Mount Everest in your career is being a commissioner on the Royal Commission into Institutional Response to Child Sexual Abuse, a extremely important event in our the life of our country. Can you tell us a bit about it? I mean, Royal Commissions come up quite often, but we don't really get a look behind the curtain to find out how they work. So can you tell us about that Royal Commission, how it carried out its functions, what were the outcomes? Have there been outcomes? I can't recall that, where there have been legislative outcomes. So your experience of being a Royal Commissioner. Okay, let me start. Uh, there have been outcomes. I'll, I'll come back to that in mm-hmm. in a moment. And I'm, I know that sense that often there's a huge amount of work that gets done, a whole lot of recommendations that get made and they end up gathering dust on shelves. I'm pleased to say that this Royal Commission doesn't fit that category. I think one of the reasons that that is so, well, I think there are a few reasons. The first is that Unusually, this Royal Commission started with bipartisan support across the political landscape, and I think that is um, that was extremely fortunate. Six of us were appointed onto the onto that Royal Commission. Three of us were lawyers, and three not. And I think that was important too, because the three 
non-lawyers. One was a former Chief Commissioner of Police from Queensland. One was a former Senator from Western Australia who'd had a long involvement in these issues and indeed was a child, the, the subject of a child migrant scheme himself. And the third non-lawyer was an Indigenous woman from WA who had uh, a tremendous history in working with childhood trauma and was a both a psychiatrist and an academic. So they brought really important features, uh, skills and experience onto the commission. We worked in, we, we did our work in three ways, public hearings, a large body of research that we commissioned and private sessions. Public hearings speak for themselves. The research, of course, was uh, we, we had an internal body that was both commissioning and setting the terms of reference and overseeing that research, which was largely being driven by the information that we were picking up from the over 8,000 people that came to meet with us during the five years of the Royal Commission in those private sessions. Those private sessions became an extraordinarily important part of our work. And so they were one-on-one -on -one sessions that we did with people right across the nation. The people that came to speak with us in those sessions were people who came forward voluntarily. So no one was compelled to come into a private session. That was an extraordinarily powerful experience for each of us. And as I said, we met with over 8,000 people who chose to come in and speak with us about their experiences, both directly and indirectly, of uh, exposure to childhood sexual abuse in an institutional setting. And that what we picked up out of those private sessions, as I said, became an enormous part of how we ran the research program, what themes we were picking up out of those private sessions, and also how um, we identified what we would focus on in our public hearings. Are there any stories that come out of these private sessions which are able to be shared? Well, uh, as you can imagine, uh, Michael, there are hundreds of stories, um, many of them of pain and suffering and distress and devastation, but equally, well, not equally, but included in those stories are stories of great human triumph over adversity and stories of resilience and and strength one of the one of the things that is will stay with me always was an understanding of the importance of hearing recording and providing back to the nation those truth-telling forums they were so powerful and so important and personally I I learned so much about such in some ways such simple human things as the importance of being listened to and not just being listened to but feeling like you have been heard and understood. And that leads me to the one story that I, I will tell. And the story is comes from a couple, husband and wife, that came in to talk about their experience of going through the criminal justice system as a result of their child being sexually abused in a 
childcare daycare setting. The couple spoke about how they discovered what had happened, the impact upon them going to the police, making statements, going through the process of committal, giving evidence at at the trial of um, the perpetrator, making victim impact statements. They went through that whole process. And indeed, the perpetrator uh, was convicted, sentenced to imprisonment by the judge. And as I said, they prepared victim impact statements and, uh, as I understand it, were given the opportunity to read them to the court. So having listened to that, they, we got to the end of them telling their story and they were expressing great gratitude to the Royal Commission for allowing them to come in and tell their story. And as you can imagine, that, for me, ignited an interest in what they were anticipating would be the value of coming to the Royal Commission and also why they had expressed their gratitude for that opportunity. They'd been quite positive about their experience of the police, the prosecutor and indeed the judge. And what they said to me has stayed with me and will stay with me forever. They wanted me to understand this is the first time we have had the opportunity to tell our story. What they meant was at each and every stage along the way, they were told, no, that's not relevant. No, you can't put that in. No, that's not important. No, the judge won't let that in. We can't do that. Whether it was their police statement or their evidence or their victim impact statement. So when they said, to me, this is the first time we've been able to tell our story. What they meant was what we experienced without being filtered or controlled by someone else. What the outside were telling us was important and relevant, which was not the same as what we experienced as important and relevant to us. That raises the question, of course, Jennifer, would, should our criminal justice system be changed in some way to enable people to say those things, tell their story, be listened to, and not in a controlled way, as may be the case now? Would, I mean, we have a system which is adversarial, can be quite confronting to people that are the victims, the accused as well, can be very confronting. Is there a space in our system somewhere to be more understanding, like the Royal Commission was to people? I think there is a growing understanding that that space needs to be created. I, I think there's a, a very clear and growing understanding that the need to be able to tell one's story, one's experience, that very human need that if any of us stops and thinks about it, we, we understand implicitly. And it's interesting, I, I think it's fair to say Michael, that over these last probably five to ten years, there has been a, a really growing understanding that our process, whether it's inside the criminal justice system or sits alongside the criminal justice system, needs to be much more nuanced and sophisticated to provide the opportunity for that to happen. I guess... Our politicians will need to have the political will to do so, but I hope they do. 
Jennifer, getting back to those outcomes, which, unlike a lot of royal commissions, are not gathering dust on a shelf. There have been real outcomes that have a real impact on our society and an impact to better our society. Can you tell us what some of those outcomes are? Uh, Yes, Michael. Well, one of the things that I omitted to say is that this National Royal Commission, not, not only did it have bipartisan support across the political spectrum, also across the states and territories. So each of the states and territories issued letters patent, um, in other words, the document that sets up the Royal Commission in identical terms to the way in which the Commonwealth set up their terms of reference inside the document that started this Royal Commission. That's important to understand because the recommendations that we made, 409 of them, spanned across the Commonwealth and the states, and some of them were to work in collaboration with each other and some of them were directed specifically at the Commonwealth or the states. So to give you a few examples, we we did a criminal justice report, so recommendations directed towards changes in the criminal justice system, a civil justice report with recommendations directed to changes in the civil justice system, and working with children checks, recommendations about a national scheme. And one of the things that we also did was we made, recommended to the government that they continue to provide reports back to the parliament, in other words, back to the public, about what was happening with respect to the implementation of the recommendations to enable the public to understand what was accepted, what was rejected and what was being implemented. So there is a report that came back, uh, I think it was in July 2018, with respect to the recommendations to the Commonwealth, rejecting none. Let me just identify two of the things directed at, two of the recommendations directed at the Commonwealth was a national redress scheme and setting up a National Office of Child Safety. So both of of those things have been done. 84 recommendations were directed at setting up the National Redress Scheme. And whilst that has been the subject of some criticism, it certainly has been implemented, as has the National Office of Child Safety. Victoria, too, has been providing reports with respect to the ongoing implementation of the recommendations, and I'll pick out just a few. So one was removing the statute of limitations on civil claims. So as you would know, there was um, a restriction on time limits with respect to child sex abuse claims. Um, That meant that many, many people, if not the vast majority, were time barred out of their applications. So that was removed. We recommended a reportable conduct scheme, similar to the one operating in New South Wales, be implemented in each of the states. Victoria has done that. We recommended 10 child safe standards be mandatory for institutions providing services to children. That has been implemented. We recommended intermediaries be developed and provided for child victims going through criminal justice process as a result of sexual abuse and and various aspects of that being developed inside courts. And I'm very pleased to say and see that the intermediary scheme originally piloted has now, as I understand it, been implemented inside the Victorian Criminal Justice Scheme. Thank you very much, Jennifer. Uh, For someone who uh, started as a young person in Melbourne's eastern suburbs who thought she wanted, I guess, to be an agent for change and change for the better, you have achieved a lot. Um, And I'm sure your mum would be more than proud of uh, the, the 
remarkable career you've had. Looking back on that career, looking back on a young girl coming from a public housing estate, what would you say to that young girl today if it was the in the year 2022 and she's in her mid-teens and at high school and wanting to do law but maybe not have the opportunities? What would you say? I would say be proud of who you are and be determined. Be determined to stick with what you believe in and Indeed, if I could leave a message for young people considering a pathway into the law, Michael, for any young people that are listening or not necessarily that young, but people who, like me, can make their way in at a a later time in life. This profession, this legal profession, the more I have been involved in it and the more I've seen, the more I absolutely can see that it is so fundamentally important to a healthy democracy, to have a strong, independent and well-informed legal profession. And when I talk about being well-informed, part of what I mean is to encourage those who come from non-mainstream backgrounds and to, to bring that diversity into the legal profession. It enriches us, it strengthens us. And so I I want to give that particular, take this opportunity to give that particular encouragement. So part of that encouragement is come inside the tent, bring a sense of personal pride that if you carry that personal pride, you'll bring that pride into the profession more generally. And respect to our profession is really important. And that commitment to the pillars of work inside the law will also bring respect to our profession. And finally, a really important message to anyone contemplating a life in the law is look after yourself. Thank you, Jennifer. Most interesting, informative, enjoyable. Show notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today. 